The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right. Oh, my goodness. I see some familiar faces in here. Um, First of all, my name is Jacob Gantos, um, and I am the director of the Bible College here. How many of you had no idea we had a Bible college? Raise their hand. <laughs> um, it's a pretty small school, and we've been going through a lot of changes. We used to be affiliated with Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta, but if you don't know, that school has kind of shut down and moved to a different location, and so, and then with COVID and uh, with Pastor Ray passing, uh, you know, the school has kind of been laying low. Uh, we're offering. Uh, Some classes, like we just offered a Hebrew language course um, recently, which had like over 100 signups. So people here uh, just love to get into the word, understand the Hebrew and the Greek, primarily the Hebrew, um, because of our close roots to uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, And so Danny Ramos, who typically teaches, uh, he asked me, to, uh, to share my testimony. So um, I had the opportunity about a month ago to share my testimony uh, at the pastor's meetings, um, uh, at one of the pastor's meetings about a month ago. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was really great because, you know, I, was, I became a Christian years and years ago. Um, and from time to time, I have the opportunity to share my story, share my testimony, um, uh, but, you know, I hadn't shared it for a long time. And so Doug Dorsey, he asked me if I could share with the guys uh, my story, my testimony. I, I had the opportunity to pastor a church in Michigan for a few years. Um, I actually got voted out of that church. Uh, and uh, one day I would love to have the opportunity to share with you that, that part of my story. But uh, for tonight, um, I'm going to share the part of my story that really that really involves Christ saving me, uh, him finding me, not necessarily me finding him, but him finding me where I was. Um, And so uh, the Lord used uh, this particular scripture to to literally reveal himself to me. And it was in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. And we're going to read it here so that way we can know what we're reading and then we're going to pick apart just a few verses. Um, my commitment to you, um, forgive me if I fail my commitment, but I plan to be done talking at about 7.55 or 8 o'clock um, because in conclusion, I have a song that I would like to share with you. I'm going to sing a cappella. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, there's just a song by my favorite um, artist, Keith and Kristen Getty. Um, and it's kind of a Thanksgiving song. This is why I wore my orange shirt, um, and this is why the background is as such, uh, to commemorate Thanksgiving. Um, and so in honor of that, uh, one of my favorite songs by them um, is called My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness. Uh, and this is really neat. It's, it's actually very amazing. So I did not know this, but Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, the first part of Philippians chapter 3, have everything to do with Paul's past, present, and future. That part I knew, but what I didn't know is that the song, My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness, 
um, written by Keith and Chris and Getty is actually a picture of the Christian's life, his past, present, and future. And I chose the song, um, you know, obviously before I knew that. And so when I was looking at the song and in honor of Thanksgiving, it just, it just amazed me. Uh, and I'm so, so happy and excited for you guys to hear it. Uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, they tend to, um, they're, they're modern hymn writers. And so their works are very deep theologically. Um, and I'm so blessed by them. And so I wanted to, to bless you uh, with this song as well. Um, but with that, I've introduced myself. I told you that Danny asked me to share my testimony. Um, verses 1 through 11, we've already talked about. Uh, at a high level, Paul really uses himself as an example to the Philippian church um, to share um, about all of his credentials, only at the very end to say that they're meaningless. Um, now, this that fact, that point right there, is exactly what God used to completely change my life. Um, and so I will, we're going to go ahead and, and read verses 2 through 9, um, and then we're just going to get right into it. Um, I wrote out a lot of what I have to say tonight, so that way we actually get through it. Um, and, uh, and then we'll close with the song, uh, and then I'm going to pray over you. Um, uh, a very dear uh, topic um, uh, that is just very dear to me. And, and I'll share that with you at the end, pray over you. Um, uh, and before that, we'll listen to the song and then I'll close out with praying. And then uh, Jimmy will come up for the last uh, three songs. So with that being said, um, let's go ahead and just open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter three. So Let's go ahead and kind of replay what happened to me uh, so many years ago when the Lord saved me and found me. Um, I was at a youth group meeting, and we just had our Bibles open. Uh, and so let's open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. Before we get into it, um, just, just a quick little overview of what um, these verses are a little bit more in depth. I already shared with you that Philippians 3, 1 through 11 are the past, present, and future of Paul during the time he was writing. But if we drill down just a little bit deeper, just so that way you know what to expect, um, that's always important to me. Um, uh, verses four through six, um, Paul lays out his credentials to show that if anyone has reason to boast, it is him. In verses seven and eight, he considers all of those things, his credentials, as a collective loss. He sets them aside for Christ. And then verse 9, Paul describes what happens to a believer when he has gained Christ and is found in him. And so with that, uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, we are so honored uh, to have access to your word. Lord, uh, men and women throughout history have suffered death uh, in attempts to preserving your word, translating it into languages that are easily understood by people. And your word tells us that though heaven and earth will pass away, your word will remain forever. And yet we have in this life this perfect book, um, this book full of your thoughts and your words to us. And Father, we are thankful that we have the opportunity 
to read it, that we have the opportunity to worship freely in our nation. And so, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus uh, that we would take this time seriously, but at the same time, joyfully, Lord, um, for you've created us uh, to worship you uh, and to enjoy you forever. And so, Lord, we love you, and we ask that you would be here. We know that you are. Um, uh, we love you so much. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 2, beginning uh, and ending at 9. By the way, uh, my message is entitled, No Confidence in the Flesh, which is mentioned at the end of verse 3, which kind of sums up kind of the entirety of, of my message and even this uh, portion of scripture. So Paul says to the Philippian church, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. I would love to get into more in depth of these verses, but we don't have time. So I'm just going to uh, focus on a few verses here. But very, very quickly, the Philippian church um, was being uh, kind of infiltrated by this group known as the Judaizers, okay? And at a very high level, the Judaizers were simply Jews who confessed faith in Christ, but believed that Gentiles and Jews themselves were still required to observe uh, and follow the Torah, okay? And primarily circumcision. So they were actually suggesting that Gentiles be circumcised um, should they get saved in their later life. Um, and, and I would venture to say that there may be nothing um, more frustrating to Paul as you read his letters than the Judaizers um, and other groups of people that attempt to mix grace and works. Okay, we know that faith without works is dead. And we know that when we do work for God, we do so, obviously, out of our faith. We don't receive our faith because we've been good, for we know that no one is good, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that really is kind of the entirety of this message. And so Paul is saying, beware of dogs. He's calling the Judaizers names, like derogatory names. Um, and he says, beware of the mutilation at the end of verse 2. And in the King James Version, the word here is concision. And what concision means is the only time Paul uses this word at the end of verse 2, um, the only time the New Testament mentions this word, and it literally means the mutilation. So he's calling the Judaizers who are in a way obsessed with circumcision um, mutilators of the flesh, kind of, uh, kind of mocking them, if you will. And then here in verse 3, he claims really the true circumcision by, by saying this in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And in verses 5 through 6, he goes through his credentials. Verse 5, Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
And then here is when Paul kind of shifts gears and says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. He expounds further in verse 8, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung, if you have the King James Version, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And I won't read verse 10. Um, We don't have time to to read all of it. So we're going to um, park right here at verses four and six and kind of set up um, how God revealed himself um, to me, a uh, prideful little Roman Catholic boy, having grown up in Cleveland, Ohio, and moving out here in California in, I don't even know the year, like 2001, maybe, or something. Um, And so um, here's how God used these very words to crush me. So I wrote a, so my, my aunt, who is Roman Catholic, this is my mom's sister, she still lives in Cleveland uh, with the rest of my extended family. And she came to visit us two weeks ago. And this was during uh, the, the service that uh, she came to church with us and, and Pastor Daniel uh, spoke on the blind man. Uh, and it was just, it was just amazing. Um, and, uh, and I was so excited for my aunt to come to church with us uh, because I wanted you know, her to just see our, our, our life here, our life in Christ. And so she, she came, and, um, I, and I'm going to ask her to watch this um, sermon, and so this will be a little bit awkward, but um, I, I, heard her, I heard her pray the prayer uh, that, that Daniel led everybody through, which is amazing, uh, because, you know, I really didn't, I really didn't know. You never know, right? You just, you never know when you invite someone to church what, what's going to happen, um, and, uh, and it was, it was, it was truly amazing. And I heard my aunt say the prayer. And so, uh, when she left, I decided that before she left, I decided that I wanted to write her a letter sharing my, uh, my testimony. Um, and I used to be much more bold. Uh, I used to be much more confrontational. I used to be able to really just strike up a conversation about deep spiritual things, even if it felt kind of confrontational. But in my later years, shame on me, um, I find that sometimes writing a well-thought-out letter might do a little bit more justice and maybe communicate more clearly what I'm actually trying to say. And so rather than striking up the conversation with my aunt um, while she was here, I decided to write this letter to her. And so I shared with her my story, and then a week later, Danny asks me if I can share my story with all of you, and a month before, I shared my story with the pastors. So I don't like talking about myself, but I've had multiple people ask me to share it, and so I'm doing so. And that's the reason why I really wanted the focus of this message to be more so on Philippians chapter 3 and what Paul has to say about the works of the flesh, his credentials, and then casting them off because it was really the scripture itself that God used to literally save my soul, 
literally. I mean, the, the youth pastor, as you'll see here, was literally just reading the Bible. And God spoke to me like he never had before and saved me. Uh, it was amazing. So here's how God used these very words to crush me. Uh, the following is taken from a letter I recently wrote to my Roman Catholic aunt who came to church with us two weeks ago. She was visiting from Ohio. Instead of sharing verbally with her, I wrote her a letter. So here it is. Words can't describe, and this is a letter to my aunt who is Roman Catholic, so I'm sharing with her the, my, my, uh, my good thoughts toward Roman Catholicism. Um, words can't describe how grateful I am for my Roman Catholic upbringing. I know that might sound crazy to some of you, but I'll explain. Um, I appreciate so much the reverence I was taught growing up and the dedication of going to church every Sunday. My memories of church growing up from the passion play to the stations of the cross to making my first communion to being an altar boy to holiday services and Lent, I truly have such fond memories of church life growing up. There was one thing, however, that I felt was missing from my life in the Catholic Church. Knowledge of Christ and his word, and a sincere and personal relationship with him. As an example, in my years going to Catholic school from kindergarten to eighth grade in Cleveland, Ohio, I only remember one time ever reading the Bible in school. I was in second grade, Miss Lorenz's class, and I remember vividly her telling the class one day to go to the back of the classroom to get the Bibles and bring them back to our desk. Anyways, um, I grew up some more, and my family eventually decided to move to California, and I was devastated. Um, I had big plans to play high school basketball at Holy Name. Um, I never thought of myself living anywhere else. Um, the year we moved from Ohio to California was very difficult emotionally for me. I was devastated, uh, moving away from friends and family. The Christmas break after we moved we flew back to Ohio to spend Christmas with family. And during that break, my friends, former friends in a way, who were freshmen in high school, had thrown a few parties. At one of them in particular, I drank alcohol and ended up drinking too much. And all I remember uh, was eventually waking up in a hospital bed um, with a tube inside my body, draining alcohol out, um, and then also seeing my mom standing in the doorway uh, of my hospital room. The shame and embarrassment I felt as my mom looked at me was like never before. When we got back to California, my parents made me get a job, a sign-holding job for those new housing developments, uh, to pay off the hospital bills. Good for them. It was during this time that I got into a relationship uh, with my neighbor across the street. Her name was Brittany. And her mom, Wendy, told me, if you are going to be with my daughter, you need to come to youth group with us. I was not thrilled to go to a non-Catholic youth group, but I didn't really have a choice, so I went. I'm not sure if it was the first youth group meeting I went to or not, but I remember the setting very well. We were meeting in a home, in a living room. To this day, I remember where certain people were sitting, what they were wearing, the youth pastor, Frank Robles, was sitting at the bottom of the stairs and was teaching on this very scripture, Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. As he read verses 5 through 6, it all sounded great to me. In fact, I remember as Frank was reading off the list, 
I remember correlating each credential to my own credentials. I was baptized as an infant, belonged to the largest Catholic church in the Cleveland Diocese. I was an altar boy. My dad played Jesus in the Passion Play, which was a live enactment of the Passion of Christ. I wanted to be a priest. My friends called me the priest because of that aspiration. I said my rosary almost every night, etc. You get the picture. Well, I had no idea what was coming in verse 7 because I didn't know the Bible. And then he reads verse 7. And let's just pause and read it for a second. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And when he read verse 7, it quite literally was like a spiritual hammer fell from heaven or like someone gut punched me out of nowhere. What? You mean to tell me that Paul and all of his accomplishments, his credentials, his status are considered by him to be a loss, even more in verse 8, rubbish, so that he could gain Christ? When I heard these words read from the Holy Scriptures, they crushed me along with all of my pride in being a good little Catholic boy. See, I loved God. I really did. I prayed to him regularly, and as I've described, felt very devoted to him. However, I had it wrong, sincerely wrong. I had grown up thinking that I would get to heaven one day by being a good person, doing good things, and by being the best Catholic I could be. But that was all flipped upside down when I finally learned and realized that it is not by my own good works that I am saved, but by his singular work on the cross that I am saved. I learned in that moment that it is not good people who go to heaven, but forgiven people who go to heaven. I never really looked at myself as needing forgiveness because of how hard I was working to be a good person. That night, God saved me. He saved me from myself, from my own false understanding of who God was. In a night, that night, I actually became a new person. It was like the story that Pastor Daniel shared two Sundays ago. I was blind, but then I saw. And so that is, that is my, you know, my story, um, having grown up Roman Catholic um, and the Lord really finding me, revealing himself to me. Um, and so that's great. That's my story. But I, I do want to look at what Paul has to say um, uh, in verses uh, 7 uh, and 8 and 9. Okay? So let's, let's, dig, let's dig deep here. Uh, we've got about 10, 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so let's go ahead and read verse 7 again. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. We won't go to verse 9 yet. So what's Paul saying? Paul states that the gains in his former state in all actuality was altogether a loss. In that, those gains occupied the place of Christ, therefore a thing that kept him from Christ. So Paul counted them as such, a loss. The Greek word implies a hindrance, a liability or risk, as on a balance sheet, 
and decided to set them aside for Christ. In other words, when Paul took account of himself, he saw a life void of Christ, as Christ was unknown experientially by Paul at that time, yet his life was full of gains as it related to his former state. So, as stated above, he set those gains aside, considered them a loss for Christ instead. So, what I want to kind of acknowledge here um, is that these things were, in fact, gains to him in his former state. They actually were gains to him. He was able to ascend to high places of society and accomplish what he wanted to do because of those gains. For in his former state, these credentials did him well. That is, without Christ, those did him well. But when Christ shone forth on that road to Damascus, the word tells us that something like scales fell from his eyes. In his former state, he was blind to Christ. And this is so key. Why? Why was he blind to Christ? Because his belief was misguided. Sincere, yes, but it was misguided. Why was he misguided? He was led to believe that by serving God and by doing this and that, the sheer fact that he was of the stock of Israel from true Hebrew parents, more so of the tribe of Benjamin, he believed that he could actually boast in those things. He did boast in those things. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. There are people who tell you it's okay to believe anything as long as you're sincere. We've all heard that. This is a lie from the pit of hell. Why? Not only did Paul place his faith, this is key, in the wrong things, but you see he calls them a loss. Not worthless. Like a loss implies a deficit. Not worthless. Worthless implies it has no worth, but it might not necessarily do you any harm. He does not refer to them as worthless to imply that they have no worth or are indifferent, but a loss, a detriment to him. The Greek word here is translated elsewhere, damage. Why? Why, why did he consider these things a loss and damaging? Because it was these very things that actually stood in the way of Christ. You can't have both because he thought that was that it was in these works, in his credentials, that he was pleasing God. And he was so conditioned to think so that the sheer thought of setting them aside was unfathomable until Christ removed the scales from his eyes and revealed to him the true way of the cross and the true way of salvation. Imagine a solar eclipse right? You have like the moon that is covering the sun. That is kind of like how all of his credentials were to Paul. They literally blinded him to the son of God. They blinded him to the light of Christ. These separated him from Christ, were in the place of Christ. So he cast them off, sets them aside, and counts them as a detriment to his life all for Christ. Now, in verse 8, he elaborates on verse 7. Notice verse 7 is kind of small. Verse 8 is much bigger. He kind of says the same thing, but he says it a little bit differently. So here in verse 8, he elaborates on, builds upon, digs deeper 
into what he stated in verse 7 as it relates to what he considers a loss. Verse 7 is kind of like the tip of an iceberg. But verse 8 is that larger mass that's beneath the surface, okay? Note also that Paul now begins to speak more so, not entirely, but more so in the present tense. So remember, like I said, in verses 1 through 11, we see Paul's past, we see his present, and we see his future. We've already talked about his past. Now he tends to, now he's shifting kind of more toward his present state. And so in verse 8, we've already read it. We'll read it again. It says, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them this time, first time he's used this word, as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. So Paul takes this setting aside element further by saying that he continues in the present tense. He continues, not just did, but continues to set aside. Anything, he says, that keeps him this time, not from Christ himself, but from the excellence of knowing Christ. His master, he adds, a knowledge that excels all else. It is for his master, in order that he might gain his master, that he threw overboard all things, threw overboard all things which kept him from his master and does continue to count such things which separate him from Christ's master as the word dung here implies offensive refuse, dung, sometimes referring to the excrement of animals. Disgusting. Such things are offensive, despised, and hated by Paul. So not only were these things that kept him from Christ firstly referred to as damage and a detriment to him, there are many things that can happen to you that are damaging to you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to hate them. But Paul is saying that he actually now hates those things, hates those things which would potentially keep him from seeing Christ for all that he is without the mixture of works and grace. Again, this does not mean that we don't do good works. It is where we, where we consider our works in our lives. Do we put our faith in our works or in Christ? So that word suffered loss, I want to share really quick. Um, it relate, it's, like a, it's like a nautical term, okay? And uh, John Calvin, I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, maybe you've heard good things, maybe you've heard bad things. Uh, but John Calvin was one of uh, the great reformers. Um, and John Calvin looked at Martin Luther as his, his father in the faith because of how Martin Luther and the Reformation in the 16th century really uncovered once again, which hadn't been uncovered for about a thousand years, this pure message of the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, as opposed to in the Dark Ages from the year 500 to 1500, for a thousand years, Christians like you and I sitting in church would be taught by the Roman church all over Western Europe that you are saved by your works. And there was this, there was this intimate, deep, damaging mixture of grace and works, grace and works. And for years and years and years, this teaching 
went out, it went forth until Martin Luther came to the end of himself and couldn't take it anymore and nailed 95 theses to a church in Germany and that sparked the Reformation in 1517. And it was from the Reformation that you and I really are, are blessed the way that we are. The fact that we have this Bible in English and can worship freely is really God's using the people of God during that time to preserve his word so that you and I could sit here and listen to the word of God and be freed from all of the chains of sin and darkness and our flesh. And so this term, suffered loss, is a nautical term, and John Calvin writes, this is so good, kind of hard to understand, so I'm going to try to read it the best way that I can so that you understand it. Here, so sorry, suffered loss. This nautical term was used when a crew or ship was in danger of shipwreck. Items were thrown overboard, of course, to lighten the ship to stay afloat. So John Calvin speaks of this suffering loss the way that Paul did it versus maybe other sailors might do it uh, in the context of their work. Here, he not merely by words, but also by realities, amplifies greatly what he had before stated. Forget that. For those who cast their merchandise and other things into the sea, that they may escape in safety, do not therefore despise riches, but act as persons prepared rather to live in misery and want than to be drowned along with their riches. That makes sense? So when they throw the riches overboard, they don't really want to do it, but they have to do it because if they don't do it, they're going to drown. So they part with them indeed, but it is with regret and with a sigh. And when they have escaped, they bewail the loss of them after they're safe and sound on the shore. Then they think, gosh, I wish I had those riches. Paul, however, declares on the other hand, that he had not merely abandoned everything that he formerly reckoned precious, but that they were like dung, offensive to him, or were disesteemed like things that are thrown away in contempt. This is the fashion in which Paul got rid of those things which kept him from seeing Christ. And so verse 9, because we just cut off Paul mid-sentence by stopping at verse 8, um, he says, and be found in him. So to gain Christ and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So because we're about out of time, this is my last point. There are two types of righteousness that Paul describes here. Righteousness, which is no righteousness at all because it is from the law, and if you want to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, it will, it will exclaim more than I can how worthless it is to even attempt to follow the law as described in the Old Testament. In fact, Paul tells us that the purpose of the law is to show us that we can't keep the law in order to lead us to Christ. And so here, Paul is describing two types of righteousness. The first one, man's righteousness, which is through the law and ultimately no righteousness at all. But then he describes the righteousness which comes from God. And I want to read this. Notice that the righteousness Paul describes here firstly comes from God. It says it right there in verse 9. Not from the law, which we observe and attempt to do, 
but it comes directly from God. And not only that, but the righteousness itself is, in fact, God's righteousness. We know this by looking at the first part of the verse, which will lead me to my last and final point. Paul says, not having my own, but God's. The phrase, this is interesting, having, the word having there, not having my own, is of course in the present tense and is a verb meaning to hold, implying that when he has gained Christ and when he has been found in Christ, he is already in the present tense holding the righteousness which is given him by God. So do you see how Paul does not put righteousness in the beginning, but he puts it at the end. And so my encouragement to you, that's, that's pretty much what I have for you, but my, my encouragement to you is to be as passionate as Paul is toward the Judaizers when you even sense a little bit some teaching or someone trying to mix works and grace. Listen, Works is a result of faith and grace. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. This is the whole purpose of the fact that we are not saved by our works. Because if we could be saved by our works... Why in the world would Jesus needed to have come and died on a cross for us if we could just follow a rule book? So you see, Paul here did not know that. But when he came into contact, when, when Jesus Christ revealed himself to him on the way to Damascus, his eyes were open to this beautiful, liberating, much, much better covenant than the old and so we say that respectfully. We are grateful for the old covenant, for it leads us to Christ. But we are not to stop in the old covenant, for we are in the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And so my, my like I said in the beginning, I wanted to share a song with you. Um, and we'll go ahead and play that song here. Um, and then I want to share, I want to pray over you um, something very special and dear to me uh, after the song. My heart is filled with thankfulness to Him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me light and wrote his law of righteousness with power upon my heart my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who walks Beside who floods my weakness. 
So I'm going to uh, pray over you, uh, and uh, when Jimmy uh, and the band come back up, um, we've set out communion for you guys to come up as you, as you please. Um, and so with that, I'm going to pray, and the, and the topic that I've been wanting to share with you is the topic of assurance, assurance, assurance of your salvation. Um, Thomas Brooks, uh, he's an old Puritan. Uh, and he wrote a book called Heaven on Earth. And the entire book is just about this topic of assurance. Uh, he says, it is a pearl that most want, a crown that few wear. A man may be a true believer and yet would give all the world were it in his power to know that he is a believer. Just beautiful. And so I'm going to pray for this over you. Um, so that God might, in his grace, give you assurance. And if you ever, ever feel unsure of your salvation, you find me, you promise me, I'm not kidding. You find me and you ask me, what do you mean when you said this? What was that book called? How do I know that I'm saved? I'm not joking when I say that. If you ever feel that way, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, volunteer pastor, and I want you to ask me that question. I would love, even maybe more so than what I had the chance to do tonight, to sit down with you and share with you why and how you can be assured of your faith in Christ. Because it is not our work. And if, we, if we're not assured in a way, I don't want to be too offensive, but in a way, if we're not sure of our salvation, we are in a way spitting in the face of Christ, saying to him, that his blood is not enough for me. Amen. We can't say that. We don't have a right to say that because he purchased us and he deems us children of God, the righteousness of God. And that is who we are 
in Christ. And I pray that you are assured of that. So with that, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would grant your saints, your people here, the gift of assurance. Assurance that your blood, Jesus, is enough for them. Assurance that there is nothing that they can do Nothing that they can't do to make you love them any more or any less. For it is the blood, the perfect and precious blood of Jesus Christ that washes and cleanses them from all unrighteousness. Your word, which is settled in heaven, which will never pass away, claims that those who are in Christ Jesus are saved. Father, we are so humbled by that fact. We thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you that you've given us your word that we can know that we can cast off all of those things which we think have value in and of themselves, which we think please you. Lord, I pray that the person of Christ and the work of Christ is the only thing that we glory in. I pray that we would worship you, that we would enjoy you forever to your glory in the name of your precious, spotless lamb and son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.